You're listening to a special edition of On the Record, online with Eric Schwartzman, the official podcast of the Public Relations Society of America International Conference, October 16th through 19th, 2010, in D.C., featuring conference keynote speakers, panelists, and newsmakers. To join PRSA or register for the conference, visit prsa.org. Well, I'll tell you what, I am really excited about this interview. It's probably, of all the interviews I'm doing here at PRSA, the one, I'm, one of the ones I'm most like, excited about. And uh, I have with me a guy by the name of Gino Church. He is the word of mouth and inspiration officer at a place called Brands on Fire in South Carolina. I heard him speak at the Society for New Communications um, Review, a Snicker Conference, and was blown away and happened to get a copy of the book, his book, Brains on Fire, uh, because it's published by my publisher, Wiley, and I was out there having a meeting about uh, my book, which is, I'll plug, uh, Social Marketing to the Business Customer with Paul Gillen. It'll be a B2B-focused book. But I, you know, I, I read a lot of these books, and they're so, many of them are quite similar. But yours really is a fresh perspective on igniting communities. And I want to give you a chance to talk about um, sort of what makes your approach at Brains on Fire different. Well, at first, just I want to say thank you for um, letting me come on. And that's really just super kind words to hear. I, I really, uh, really, really appreciate that and, and take it to heart. Um, what is different from our approach? I, you know, I don't know that it's really a difference of approach more than it is maybe a, um, a work ethic in believing in um, people. And, you know, coming, I, I come from a traditional marketing background. I was an art director, creative director for years. And things kind of changed with me about 10 years ago when we were engaged to try to fight smoking by teens in the state of South Carolina. And um, we could have gone the easy route, which was doing television and radio and all the stuff that the truth people were doing with all those body bags and all that stuff. And, and instead, there was something in our heart that realized that we, all that money that we would have spent on that stuff would have been gone the next year and we would have had nothing left for it. So we, you know, we buckled up, uh, up our helmets, we got our hands dirty, and we went out and we engaged teens finding out how they live, what, what, what would be possible if they became the message instead of um, television, what you would consider traditional media. And that really, I think, is what the book is about, is that journey. It's a lot of practice. It's a lot of mistakes. Um, it's a lot of, um, I don't know, just meeting wonderful people. And it's almost more about them than it is about Brains on Fire. So I think that's the thing that might be a little bit different, is that it's not going to be about social media tactical tool type stuff. It's going to be about um, what some processes you can do to um, learn from people and then how you can empower them to carry the message for your brand or your organization. Why not just approach social media communications like marketing? Why not just do it that way? You know, the my, my fear is, is that it's going to start a cycle, you know, which, which kind of goes against our business, doesn't it? That, you know, we're always, we're making money when we're always running a campaign. You know, we're going to run it for 30 days, run it for 60 days, run it for 90 days. And um, that always bothered me. You know, it, 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 it bothered me in school. I, and, and so, you know, we, we try to do something that's more sustainable so that it doesn't have to continue to have that fix of, of a commercial 
um, or radio to kind of fuel it. You know, it, it doesn't matter what it is. You know, communities have a heartbeat just like um, messages do. You've got to do things to get people engaged and get excited. But, but I think the thing that um, I, I guess I hope that we do is not rely on a television and a radio or a traditional media message to um, in, in, inspire conversation that it's real people carrying that message. So I guess it's about sustainability. That's what I'm excited about. Um, so th- this suggestion that sustainability could be achieved through people yeah. rather than through cha- media channels yeah. is relatively radical because, you know, if you think about the Madison Avenue formula, it is yeah. about buying media and uh, making uh, people excited through these media stunts sure. or these sure. big circuses. So, so when you, when you suggest um, that it's going to be done some other way, Walk me through that from a practical standpoint, and maybe give me an example of, of an organization that you did that for. Um, you know, let's uh, you know, let's just go back to Fiskateers and and um, going back to the very beginning when when Fiskars came to us with a problem. They had a branding agency. They were doing traditional print. They were in um, industry magazines, crafting type magazines. Oh, what, you, what is Fiskars? Fiskars is a three hundred and sixty year old Finnish company that makes tools. They make uh, lawnmowers, like a real lawnmower that's self-propelled. They make rain barrels, and they happen to make a pretty damn good orange-handled scissor. So if you've got an orange-handled scissor, it's a Fiskar scissor. And they came to us six years ago with a, uh, a kind of a unique problem, and that was that they did, they did a brand audit, and they went around the United States, and they talked to vendors, customers, um, stakeholders, and the conversation of crafting and scrapbooking. And they said if Fiskars was a beverage, what would it be? And they said milk. If it was a snack, what would it be? A salting cracker. And the PR department and the marketing department were um, – very smart to realize that that meant there was an emotional disconnect and that it could not be changed with traditional media. And um, Suzanne Fanning, who was the head of PR at that time, went on a search to find what could she do to engage her customers? What could she do to solve some problems that they had? And that was um, there was very little conversation about their products online. And this is that early days of you know, before Facebook and before Twitter, but there was already blogs and forums having conversations. But Fiskars was not in the conversation. And then when people talked about it, they talked about how it didn't work. And unfortunately, most of those problems were user error. So she said, what can we do to engage our customer to carry that conversation for us? I mean, and, it's a scissors company. Yeah, it is. And it's, a, and it's I mean, not so sexy. You, yeah. you think about that, you think, my yeah. God, it's a scissors company. How could you possibly do anything with a scissors company from an engagement standpoint well i think you know and i I won't i won't dive too deep and i apologize i'm southern so you know we storytell um but you know what it was really weird as i reflect back on this is that if fiskars was today i don't know that we would have been allowed to do what we did six years ago Today, we did mine the blogosphere. We did go out and find out what was going on with um, conversations. But more importantly, we went out on the road for 12 days, and we met women that crafted. And we went online and offline and asked them to bring their work and share with us why they loved the scrapbook, not why they loved Fiskars. And what we, what we found was how they storytell about what they do, what they love, 
in that scrapbooking and crafting. And, and where that conversation got really funny was when they said the only tool that I trust is a Fiskar scissor or a Fiskar's paper cutter. So we, we realized then that the conversation wasn't about the tool. It was what that tool enabled you to do. And so that's, that's where that twisted to today. So how do you figure that out? Because that's one of the things you use scissors for. Sure. But sure. I might just use it to, you know, open a package or something. Yeah, yeah. So how do you, how do you discover that? How did, how did you discover it? Walk in, walk, you roll up your sleeves, get out, your, get out of your comfort zone, and participate with them in their lives. You know, and, 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 and we do that. A lot of us do that in marketing. But um, we take it to heart. I mean, you know, we've cut grass in Florida with for a lawn company. I've been in Watson um, at Locke High School in L.A. to learn about charter schools for a project we're doing there. Um, <laughs> I'm working on a project now about male grooming. And next time you're, I'll just throw this in, next time you're in L.A., yeah. if you happen to be, let me know and I will take you for the best burrito in that neck of the woods you've ever had. Best thing awesome. north of the border you've ever okay. had. Okay, that sounds great. I love And they way. have an A on the health rating. Oh, do they? And, but it's delicious yes. anyway. Yeah, it was, I've, I've been very fortunate to be there five times this year and, and love, just love Los Angeles. M&M's Mini Market. Okay. Yeah, I don't even think they have a sign. But they are on Foursquare because I put them there, and I'm the cool. mayor. Okay. Anyways, well, I'll be, I'll be back. I'll be back. I'm also the mayor in in Beaufort, well, I was for a while, of the residents in there. In South oh, Carolina? Yeah, because only because I was the only okay. guy who had ever checked in. I checked okay. in once. I was the mayor. Okay. I was unseated a year later. Well, next time you're there, I'll have to, have to taste some great seafood restaurants I would like Beaufort. that. So, but, but I think, you know, going back to that, I think a lot of it comes down to, um, you know, it's 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 – Understanding the conversation before you start thinking tactically and strategically. And that's what we really do with everything that we do. You know, you've got to understand um, where the conversation's going, where your customers, where your employees value what it is you do. You know, in the case of um, Fiskars, and we went there six years ago, and we went inside and we told them what we were going to do. One of the project managers stood up and said, I already know who our customer is. I already know what we're developing and we're designing. Well, they thought at that time their customer was a white baby boomer female. Seventy-plus percent of their customers, that, and the ones that talk about their, their crafting and scrapbooking products, are Asian-American, African-American, and their Gen, a, Gen X and Gen Y. They were designing and developing products for the wrong customer. And, and so that... What's really great is when the brand starts doing what we're having to do, go and uncover the DNA of how their customer uses their products in their life. So what's, what is the difference between a campaign and a movement? Um, yeah, we have a little funny little pitch on that. But it's, it's you know, probably the most simple way to think of it visually is that a campaign is basically if you look at an amp that's a, a guitar amp, it's got an on and off switch. You cut it on you cut it off. And that's kind of what a campaign is. We run it, we cut it on, we cut it off. And a movement really is a volume dial. It's going to, probably some of them won't even have a zero. They'll have a one and they'll have a ten. Sometimes it's just going to be a hum. It might just be static. But then it's going to go really loud. But it's never going to go to zero. And I think that's visually a difference is that if you do this right and you build it with people leading it where they have a value and an ownership of it it can start to be self-perpetuating and it can live on rage for example 
um, the 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 movement that we're a part of in South Carolina has had funding removed three times in its nine years, and it has existed um, to this day because teens have taken it and carried it with them. And if it was would have been built traditionally, it would have been dead in the first year. Talk to me, if you would, about activating a community. What are the drivers uh, that you activate a community with? I think, you know, that, that there's a ton. And I think, I think the danger for all of us, and that includes Brains on Fire, is that um, we've got to be careful not to think that we've got a process nailed down and say, okay, this is the way you do it. I, I think um, when you start participating and you start having conversations with your customers and your employees, you, you start evaluating where conversations might already be happening. If you've got a Facebook page up that they're already doing, you might need to really evaluate, is Facebook the way that we engage in this community? I think what, I think, I think what you've got to do is make sure that you're having real conversations that can give you an insight as to how to activate this community. The Fisketeer community was built with a very interesting model. We had a barrier of entry, mainly because when five, six years ago, when we looked at all the communities out there for scrapbooking, they were very toxic. They were very robust. Millions of conversations, probably monthly about scrapbooking and crafting but if you you would have posted a photo of your dog for your first um, scrapbooking post more than likely they would tell you that's a terrible layout and your dog is ugly it was awful there was not a place to go to be nurtured and, and so we we also we saw that as a problem but we also saw that I think what, what we see a lot today I don't know about you but I'm a member of so many communities, I forget half my username and passwords. They have no meaning to me. I'm not asked to put skin in the game. And so with, with the Fisketeers, and it's not right for everything, you have to get to know a Fisketeer to join. You send them an email. They send you one back. They say, why? And you just say, well, I'll, I love to scrapbook and craft, and you're in. And, and, and we lose people that way. But what we get is we start getting a relationship from day one that's real. It's not a bot. It's not through a, a, a screen that's a login screen. And I think that's critical is what can you do to put a human element? Because you've got to remember that you know, with communities and now that we're doing you know, the majority of them online, there's still a human pushing that button to say, I want to join. So what can we do to engage them? And I think that's one of the key rules is that best friends rules apply in community online as well as offline. So, you know, set them up to where you can get to know people as quickly as you can from the beginning. You know, one of the um, recurring questions I've heard here at the PRSA International Conference has been, um, how do I get followers? How do I get friends? <laughs> because I think a lot of people um, who do PR, public affairs, are being judged by a senior level person based on the number of people they've attracted to their community. Yeah. And uh, I've heard more than one person respond by saying fear. Yeah. Fear is a way to motivate. And if you look at um, the news media, bed bugs or, uh, you know, chicken pox or whatever it might be, uh, seafood allergies. I mean, they're constantly using fear to get you to tune in yeah. so they can play you some anemic 12-second soundbite that doesn't really deliver, but at least the fear got you there in the first place. Sure, sure. What is your feeling on using, because negative emotions 
to activate communities versus positive emotions. Wow, that's that's really interesting. I don't you know I, I don't know that I've I don't know that I've thought of that. I know that people rally behind. I mean, look at politics. You know, fear can cause you to go and rally against an incumbent and dethrone them because you're afraid of what they're going to do. So, fear is probably a, a you know a very good factor to start one. The problem is, can it sustain? You know, the the thing about community is that people start having things in common, um, and um, and that's what makes it really develop. You know, now that you're saying that, though, you know, it's kind of funny. Think about. Um, Athletics, and you know, like when I'm sure when Alabama lost a couple of weeks ago, um, even though Saban is just coming off a national championship, people were like just screaming in the in the in those communities because of anger, which is kind of close to fear. And so those things do drive it. I do think, but I think the a healthy community is going to have lots of conversations going on. I think if you get them there based on fear. Sooner or later, you, that conversation is going to change to something else. What about else. with uh, the scissor company? I mean, yeah. what was what were the was it a positive thing that attracted these yeah. frisketeers, or was it a negative thing? It was a positive. We actually made we didn't make people, but uh, wrong wrong choice of words because it, we felt it was so important. After we saw what those other communities did, we we set up a um, to become a frisketeer. You basically took an oath that you were going to be positive and. Up, uplift in the community that this was about um, this was about nurturing the potential of crafters at any level and so what that did was six years later the community self-polices itself I'm talking one thread pulled out of six years and that was in that was due to an Australian and a New Zealander arguing between a Wiccan and an evangelical over a scrapbooking competition thing. But what you want, in my opinion, is you want a community that can police itself because brands, that's a lot to expect a brand or even the management of it to be in there in the weeds every day fighting and pulling stuff. You don't want to do that. You want to do it to where it is organic. People know they're there for a certain reason, and yeah, they're going to argue. But when it comes to the end of the day, they know that this is something special and unique, and we got to keep it this way. So we're going to fight to keep it. You know, in the book, you talk about activating communities for um, public affairs yeah. campaigns, or I should say, movements, yeah. and also for the sale of some sort of a product, a more public relations-oriented uh, okay. effort. Are there differences between activating communities uh, behind policy or ideas versus uh, communities for selling product? Um, there, there, there are, yes, there's subtle differences, I, I think, absolutely. I, I do think, um, um, I was trying to think of an example. Um, Love 146, for example, is a, um, they were a sleepy not-for-profit that came to us with a terrible name, Justice for Children International, and their goal, their job, was to abolish child sex slavery and exploitation. Not sexy, something you don't want to talk about. Um, um, even for Rob Morris, the executive director, he would say that when he used to have to fly to Cambodia and someone next to him flying for 14 hours would say, what do you do? And he said, I work for Justice for Children International. They would never ask him anything else to do with that. And he came to us and told us a story, and I, I, won't, I won't go into it right now, but that story led to an identity that 
tells a story for them that has changed the game of their organization. They're now, they're, the name of their, their organization is Love 146. And one of the biggest um, advocates for this movement now is 13 to 18 year old girls in the United States that have embraced it and found it in their heart and they're doing um, Christmas ornaments to, homemade Christmas ornaments to raise money. They're doing um, photo essay galleries on Flickr. They're doing school events to raise money to fight issues related to Craigslist things going on. So that's a, but but what happened there, I think is whether that's for a, a, a product like a scissor in which is about storytelling for what you create with those scissors. We're about Love 146, where this name now stands for an ideal. Uh, it's bigger than the cause. This is about helping um, save young women's lives. And now there's people rallying behind that, like bands like Paramore and um, celebrities and everyday people. And so I think um, you can do it with either one, but I think it still comes in. You've got to do your homework. You've got to find a way to um, craft it to where it's a story that people can pass on for you. We're talking to Gino Church. He's the author of Brains on Fire. And when we get back, we're going to talk about how market conditions affect the way you activate communities. Stay with us. This January 2011, Paul Gillen and Eric Schwartzman bring you the first book devoted exclusively to B2B social media communications. Packed with business-to-business case studies and applied knowledge, Social Marketing to the Business Customer is the most comprehensive collection of B2B social media marketing guidance ever assembled. B2B markets are driven by value and relationships. That's very different from B2C markets. This book's a hands-on guide. It walks business people step-by-step through the process of using social media to find and engage business customers and ultimately drive more revenue. Social Marketing to the Business Customer is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and Borders. Or buy it at our show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. Also available for iPad and Kindle. Gino, um, there's a new report out uh, about how social media is being used in different countries. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing that in different markets it's used quite differently, mm-hmm. and the attitudes people have towards social media changes significantly. One of the sort of takeaway trends I saw from the study, and we'll have a link to it in the show notes, mm-hmm. is that in developing countries mm-hmm. um, where people are um, don't necessarily have the base, their basic needs met, right. um, that more of them are interested in participating in social media. Mm-hmm. And then in more mature markets where their basic needs are met, uh, people don't seem to be, they, they don't seem to see social media participation as, as important. Right. Uh, they do it. Yeah. They spend time in it. It's interesting to them. But it's actually, they don't see it as an important activity. Mm-hmm. And so I've, I've sort of been thinking to myself, because this week I'm teaching a class at the U.S. Uh, State Department, okay. Foreign Service Institute, to a bunch of uh, foreign service officers at different embassies. Some of them are from developing countries. Mm -hmm. Some of them are from emerging countries. Some of them are from mature countries. And uh, this morning, Alec Ross, who's the senior advisor to uh, Madam Secretary Clinton, Mm -hmm. uh, gave the introductory remarks. 
And some of the questions people started to ask were, well, I'm in a mature market. How's it going to work for me? Uh, well, I'm in a developing market. Mm. How's it going to work for me? And I started thinking about your book. Yeah. And yeah. I thought to myself, what well, are there any differences in activating communities in a developing market versus a mature market? And this was my initial thought. And it's, it's loose now, but I'm going to yeah. throw it out there. I'm going to get your feedback. Okay. So Alec, Alec Ross, who's at Alec J. Ross on Twitter, uh, repeated something I'd heard here at the conference. He said, fear is a great motivator. Mm -hmm. And I thought to myself, well, in a mature market, you know, is fear going to be as good of a motivator as greed? <laughs> right? <laughs> greed is a more sophisticated form of fear. Mm -hmm. It is the fear of loss yeah. or the hope for gain. And I was wondering, do you, do you think you could make an argument that perhaps in a more mature market, um, you know, the use of, uh, I don't know, some sort of opportunity to, to gain a coupon, maybe an incentive, mm -hmm. win something, yeah. land a contract, get a job. Do you think that might work better in a mature market? Or do you think fear is across the board a good driver? Yeah. I, I see your, I see that, that question. I think my first reaction is that that the greed aspect might work better in a mature market. I, I know from, you know, my, my limited experience of, of, of going in and kind of being a part of a third world country is I've, and, and I don't know that you would consider South Africa, but I would consider Johannesburg um, at times pretty third world. And I've been there on three occasions in the last um, three years. And one really interesting thing that happened to me there is I, I had to go from, um, one part of Johannesburg to the other, which is a pretty um, scary, dangerous drive. I was not driving. I was with a driver. But um, that morning, the person, my driver was checking his phone for tweets. I mean, not for tweets, but for text messages to tell him which intersections to go to because there they'll have total intersections with no um, red lights or anything. So this insurance company was putting um, almost like um, Good Samaritans on mopeds, and they would take over an intersection and guide people through it. And people loved this freaking insurance company because they offered a service, and people would plan their route based on that. That's a little bit out of fear because you get stuck in the wrong place. You could be a part of a shooting. You could be a part of a robbery. And um, so my route was planned based on where they knew these insurance advocates were going to be located to help us safely get where we're going to go. I think in a, in a developing country, fear is probably going to play a more critical point because they don't, greed is not on their radar yet. They're just trying to get by day to day. And if it's these tools, whether it's text messaging, it's this online, I mean, this offline viral thing, like going out and, and working an intersection to help people get through safely, that affects my life. And, uh, you know, I don't know that they're at the point of worrying about the greed yet, if that makes sense. Sure. And that's just, just my guess of what little I know. <laughs> One of the things that's so interesting about the, uh, is it Friskars? Fisker, Fiskars or Fiskars, whatever you okay. want to say. One of the things so interesting about Fiskars is that you tapped the passion yeah. of the community. And certainly passion is as much about hate sure. as it is about love, because there is mm -hmm. no love without hate. And there's no hate without love. Yep. So when you think about this puzzle of the developing, the emerging, and the yeah. mature markets of the world, 
any sort of takeaway thoughts on how you might tap passion in those different markets? Hmm. I'm not really sure. I mean, you know, a lot of it would be you'd have to go in and really um, take it on an individual level. I, I was very fortunate in South Africa to do. I did a 12-day speaking tour, so I traveled from Cape Town to Durban, which went from... Um, what were um, you speaking about? Word of mouth. Actually, a, word of mouth marketing. A, word of mouth marketing. A bank called uh, their name is Standard Bank um, brings a speaker in every year. And John Moore, Brand Autopsy, did it one year, recommended me, so I did it the next year, and it was a an amazing experience. But I was asked questions like that, uh, you know, a, a lot, and and um, I think it's the same there as it is here. Now it might be different in India, you know, so to speak, which would be a different market than than South Africa. But there, I had a, a gentleman ask me in a at a, at a breakfast, he said, you know, all I, I make mattresses. That's all I do. How do I get to know my customers? And I said, you know, do they ever tell you how much they love your mattresses? And he said, yeah, I get letters saying, you know, you know, I can sleep better or we just made our daughter in your mattress. And, and I said, you know what, that's the start. Why don't you invite them to where you make these mattresses? Find a way to connect. I think we forget. And... Um, and, and it's a very simple saying because I'm simple. But we love, you know, we, we love to talk to people. And I think talking is the first thing that we need to do. But we have to walk with them maybe first. Instead of it just saying, hey, just talk, talk with me. How about come and take a walk with me? And I think that's what you can do in any country. And then find out what's going on. If you're a third world country or a developing country and it's a village, don't just go in there and throw a message out. Walk with them and see what their needs are and what value you can provide in their life. I mean, because they need that. And, so, and I think that's where you start. And then that's when they'll feel passionate because you're trying to help them. In my book with Paul Gillen, we looked at a lot of business-to-business social networks. And one of the similarities we found in the, in the uh, successful ones was they identified some sort of a mentor community that mm-hmm. was going to really carry the weight, yeah. like you did with, uh, with the Friskers, um, mm-hmm. or the Fiskers uh, <laughs> case study. Yeah. And so I wonder, have you given any thought to sort of the role of the mentor? Is there any science behind setting that up or identifying who the right mentors are, how many of them to have, how much access to give them, how to activate them, and how to keep them motivated? Like a, the lead, you mean like the leads of the community, so sure. to speak? Yeah, that's pretty important, I think. Um, and I think, too, it's also very different. Um, we, we had a theory with the Fisketeers, um, um, actually, you know, it, it was probably based on rage. Um, we, we, we learned a lesson right out of the bat with working with teenagers for an anti-smoking or anti-tobacco use movement in South Carolina. Um, that when, when we started having this conversation with teens 10 years ago, most of the audience, the kids that were participating, were ones that had been doing it for it with adults over and over and over. Well, they really had no idea what they were even there for. They thought When we did a, a camp event, they thought they were at swim camp, basketball camp, cheerleading camp. And we, saw, we knew that we had a problem. We said, this is crap. We've got to start all over. So we reached out to a lady that was doing research in South Carolina on service learning programs in the state. And basically, we decided to find kids and adults that were passionate about anything other than tobacco. Who were the ones cleaning up roads? Who were the ones reading to school children, elementary children? Who were the ones reading to the elderly? Those are the kids that we wanted. So we reached out to those kids and those adults, and we invited, and it was, there was no 
magic to the number. But in the case of Rage, we reached out to 92. We reached we reached out to get 92 teams to come to two day summit. And and really we looked at that number because we just did, we, we we wanted to try to do something that was kind of weird, not a one not 100. But our goal was was to find leaders out of that to lead this movement, kick off Rage. That became really really critical because they now, in nine years, they've taught over 1,300 teens peer-to-peer how to carry that message on. And so we learned there that leadership was unbelievably important because, and I think Guy Kawasaki might have said this, is that if everyone is expected to lead, no one will lead. And, and I really believe that. So with the Fisketeers, there's always four leads in the community, and they blog, they set the tone for the conversation, but the rest of the community really is ran by the conversations of the members. But they do set the tone. You're, you're right. So the, there does need to be a mentoring-type voice for a community, I think, because I think if you expect everyone to lead, it's chaos. Uh, Gino, um, I'm, I'm a father. Yeah. And I have a, a son who's young. He's mm-hmm. not six yet. Um, and I know you have been public about an experience that you had with your daughter. Yeah. And I wonder if there's anything, I wonder if you'd just be willing to tell us maybe what you've learned and maybe any wisdom you can give other parents about how to sort of prepare for the digital world of parenting. Sure, sure. Um, you know, I, I was faced with, um, it's so funny, we work in this industry when you're in marketing and, and, and then, you know, and, and then touched heavily with social media. I think we become a little, um, we take it for granted and we take it that it's um, not going to hurt people. And um, it, it's, it's, it depends upon how you use it. You know, and unfortunately for me, you know, I put myself in a situation to where you know, I, I allowed my 13-year-old daughter to um, really have social media the same way that I did, which was wrong. Um, I, I think, unfortunately, as parents, we're caught in a really difficult situation to where um, we believe when it comes to social media, like to Facebook and our cell phones, that parenting stops there for some reason. Well, believe me, based on my experience, it absolutely does not. We, we, we need to um, know what our kids are doing and, and not think of it as policing but protecting them. And, and I didn't, you know, and I learned a lesson from that. And I was very fortunate that I, you know, my, my daughter was involved in a runaway and um, social media played a role in finding her. She was found almost 400 miles away from home by a lady that read about it, saw it, recognized it due to some dear friends that, that put some internet posters and actually put physical posters up all the way to Florida from South Carolina. Um, but I, um, you know, that I, I did not um, control it, you know, and I learned a lesson from there. So I, I think my lesson to um, parents is um, we have a lot of plans that we put in place, like fire escape plans and and you know if safety related issues but what's your safety plan for social media you know we're giving a child a cell phone which is a tool to an outside world that unless we really know how to monitor it we have no idea who they're talking to who they're texting with who they're updating facebook statuses with what they're saying that might get them in trouble down the road because my daughter has learned and what i've learned too is what she did is permanent you know, Andy Warhol once said, everyone will be famous for 15 minutes. Well, that was a long time ago. That was before the Internet. So now your actions are out there for everyone to see. And it's something we really need to think about, especially when it comes to our kids. And, you know, and I did a terrible um, 
job of understanding that and protecting it, but I damn sure know it now. So that's, you know, my advice is have a plan. I think it starts with that cell phone, not just with a laptop or a, or a desktop computer. Have a plan for what it means when you give them that phone. Is it a check-in system? Do you get the phone back at night? What do you do? Just don't hand it over and let them sleep with it under their pillow. The book is Brains on Fire. His name is Gino Church. Read this book. Gino, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you. Appreciate it. You've been listening to a special edition of On the Record, online with Eric Schwartzman the official podcast of the Public Relations Society of America International Conference, October 16th through 19th, 2010, in D.C. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, post a comment to the show blog at ontherecordpodcast.com. Connect with us on Facebook or Twitter at On The Record, or send an email to eric at ericschwartzman.com. This podcast has been a special production of On the Record, Online, and the Public Relations Society of America. Unlike normal productions of On the Record, Online, this episode recording cannot be duplicated without explicit permission from PRSA.